you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8, and so you know, we're not, uh, we're just going to be covering verses 1 and 2 again. Again, all right? I, God has something here for us, and we need to slow it down and work our hearts, as it were, into the text itself. Just before uh, reading the text and jumping in, uh, once again, I think this will be a little shorter than uh, typical Sunday. Um, but the question was asked, what is Jethro up here? Uh, Jethro is something that we started a few years ago as an effort to see uh, James and Caitlin brought on uh, as a paid, in a paid salary position here. And so Jethro was like a fundraising uh, effort to ensure that we had enough financially to support them in particular. So that still is ongoing. We were thinking of concluding it just before COVID, but as COVID came and we were like, we don't know what the next so much time of church life is gonna look like. Uh, we've continued to do Jethro. And so uh, Jethro then is supported by folks within the church as well as outside the church, friends and family, um, even across America. Uh, there's folks who give to that so that we're financially sustained and in particularly so that James and Caitlin uh, can serve in the capacity that they do. Uh, so that's what Jethro is all about. If you wonder where we get Jethro from, uh, it's actually an Old Testament story of Moses who was laboring hard, leading the people of God through that Exodus experience. And Jethro is Moses's father-in-law who comes to him and actually gives him some advice saying, hey man, you can't do this by yourself. You need other people to help serve you in the role that God's given you. And in a real way, that was my like, I need someone else to be on, you know, with me in all of this. And so we called it the, the Jethro uh, Initiative. And so uh, that's been going now for a few years. So that's what that is all about. I hope that makes sense. All right, Romans chapter 8. Uh, I'm just going to read the first two verses again. Uh, I want us to slow down, slow down. Um, very similar to what was mentioned last week. We're going to cover, do a little review from last week and just add like a couple extra thoughts. Um, as we've gone through Romans chapter 8 over the last about six weeks, we, we flew through the text to kind of give you an idea of, okay, here's, here's the spirit-led life according to Romans 8. Uh, but we felt like the Lord wanted us to go back and just slow down, put the brakes on, make sure that we're getting these massive truths that Paul uh, instructs us with in Romans 8. So we're, we've been stuck at Romans 8 verses 1 and 2 for a few weeks now. Um, we're going to give more attention to it this morning. So let me read it, and then I just want to briefly pray, and we'll jump right into it. Paul writes to the church in Rome and states, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Let's just do it again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Let's pray, and we'll jump right into it. God, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you don't mince words. 
but you speak to us plainly and openly. And Lord, would it be that even in these moments, our own sense of self-righteousness does not get in the way of the glory of your salvation. Whether it's the first time that we've heard this about you and your gospel, or whether we've known you for decades, Lord, let our self-righteousness not get in the way of the glory of your salvation. So, Spirit, we invite you to teach us, to help us, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week, we considered this text as the headwaters of our salvation. You remember the illustration? I grew up in Minnesota. There were the boundary waters that were just on the boundary of Canada and northern Minnesota, and you'd go up to that area and there's this network of lakes and streams and oftentimes when we take our canoes up there it's there is absolutely nobody up there and you're just by yourself and oftentimes you would say okay let's just see how far this goes let's see where how far back into the woods we can get and what we'd find is we'd get to the headwaters and we'd actually come to this what typically would be a little stream but that stream those headwaters would then supply all the other streams and all the other lakes. And in a real sense, this is the headwaters of our salvation. You miss this, everything else in our salvation dries up. All the benefits that we have in Christ are gone if we don't have these headwaters. If we don't have this supply, if we don't get our heads and hearts around this truth, well, we have nothing left. Everything else dries up if we don't have this particular aspect. This is, it. we could say it also, this is the core of our salvation. It's the bullseye. It's the main, main, main thing. There are many benefits to our salvation. This is the main thing of our salvation. That there is how much condemnation? No condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And remember, we talked about what condemnation is. It's a legal term. And specifically, we said it's a legal pronouncement of guilt that sets a sentence in motion. Go into in your mind's eye, go into a courtroom, and there, you know, we've, I'm not going to sidetrack this sermon with what's happened in our society. Uh, recently, but there's courtrooms happening, right? There's courtrooms happening. And you, you see the individuals that are standing awaiting some sort of pronouncement, and it is crushing. It is crushing to stand there awaiting the pronouncement. Here's the reality for us. Apart from Jesus, we all stand under a guilty sentence. Without Jesus, we are, as the word says, condemned. We are just waiting for that final day of judgment where the judge will finally declare that over us and slam that gavel to seal that pronouncement and begin what is an eternity of sentencing, an eternity of condemnation apart from Jesus. Let it sink in. This is why you can't just, can't just run through these kind of texts and just go, well, we covered that so many weeks ago. It's like you got to stay here and you got to stay here and you got to stay here. 
why, why do we need to say, why is this so important? Well, again, if you're new to Christianity, or maybe you're just like even exploring Jesus, inevitably you will buy into the lies that you're good. You'll buy into the lies that you are good, but what we come to find, especially in the book of Romans, but it's all throughout the storyline of Scripture, is that it is just the opposite. We are not good. In fact, Paul has already made the argument, and if you throw up that screen with the three different texts on it, Romans chapter 3 says, there is how many righteous? None. All right, there, there it is. No, nobody's in that category. Nobody's in that cutting. No, not one. Don't even try to get somebody in that cutting. No, not one. Nope. Paul Sanders, absolutely, don't put anybody in that space. There's none, none who are righteous. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How many have sinned? All, all right. That, that's a big word. All. All. Or Paul goes on to say in Romans 5, he says, just as sin came into the world through one man, who is that? Adam, right? As sin came into the world through Adam and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have what? All right, nobody in that category. Nobody stands outside of that. You know, as it goes, the old illustration, it's like if you would think of this in terms of a Western movie, everyone's wearing a black hat. Everyone's riding the black horse, right? They're all, we're all the bad guy. Doesn't matter what you think of yourself. Doesn't matter what culture says about you. We all stand in this category. We are condemned outside of Christ. Now, our culture will constantly say something else. It will constantly say something else. Whether it's the culture outside of us, whether it's we all know this, our inner lawyer inside of us. We all want to prove ourselves. I'm not so bad, I'm not so bad, I'm not so bad. And here are the lies that we begin to believe. I think it's the next slide. We sometimes will believe lie number one. I'm good, well, because I've done good. There are many people who go to church, who do Christian stuff, who go through all the traditional ins and outs of religiosity, and they are on their way to hell. You get that? And many, I think I can say this, there are many churches that are proclaiming a good news that says just that. I'm good because I've done good. Don't worry about being condemned. Haven't you led a, led a pretty good life? Well, you're good to go. Just keep working the sacraments, just keep doing the good works, and yep, God'll have you. It's a lie. We just saw there is no one righteous. In fact, so many of these good works will be damnable in themselves. They will damn you in themselves. You bring that stuff to God, God will sit back and say, what is this? Isaiah will say that our righteousness is, is his menstrual garments. You know what that is, right? Just to be blunt, to wake some of you up, it's a dirty tampon. Scripture is vivid. 
So you're going to bring your good works to me and think that they're going to gain favor for you in my eyes. No, no, no. That's the stuff that ends up in the trash can in the bathroom. It's detestable to God. Don't bring your good works to me, God is saying. You don't have enough good works to make this right. I'm not good because I've done good. The second lie is I'm good because, well, I'm better than most. All right, we could all look around, and Hitler becomes the, like, the one example. At least I'm not that bad, right? Uh, of course I'm going to be better than some other person. But who's setting the standard in that moment? Who's setting the bar? I'm setting the bar. I'm determining what is right and good. I'm determining the comparisons. Folks, know this, that even as Paul has made the argument, the standard is not set by you. It's not set by you. It's set by God and by his holiness. It's his standard, not our standard. We don't get to compare. We don't get to determine. That's not your role. You are creature, not creator. You are judged, not the judge. We don't get to set the standard. I'm good because I've suffered and God owes me. That's a powerful lie that, folks, I just want to, there's a lot going in on in our culture. And, and it comes down to issues of suffering. And there is real suffering that needs to be remedied in our world. But there is a lot of false victimhood going on as well. And it all has this attitude that someone else needs to be set in trial because I feel like I've been wrong. Once again, hear what I'm saying. There are legitimate areas of injustice that need to be remedied. But there is also now a swath of stuff within our culture that says, well, if you just don't like something, well, then you've been dealt with wrongly. That is wrong. That is wrong. In fact, maybe this is a little illustration. Our little one. Okay, most of you know him. Uh, I just want to be careful of live stream. Our little one, when I correct him, I discipline him. I don't know where he's heard this, but he's hearing it. He, he says, he cries after I've disciplined him, and he says, you hurt my feelings. He puts me on trial. And I'm saying to him, little one, I have disciplined you because I love you. I am not hurting you. I am not doing wrong to you. I'm doing everything right for you, no matter how you feel about your feelings. You catch that? But we have a world right now, in large part, that is saying, oh, I've been wrong. My feelings are hurt, and I need to put you on trial. And it goes then all the way to this particular point where we're actually living our, I'm good because I've suffered and God owes me. He's hurt my feelings. He's made me go through the junk that I've gone through. We put him on trial. This is wrong. Again, as Paul has made the argument in the book of Romans, we are the creature, not the creator. We don't put him on trial. I mean, just the way my mind you know, works, it's like, geez, like, I couldn't even like, find my keys this morning to get here. All right, put down my and and then I go from being this finite creature creature who can't keep track of his keys, then to having a point in moment where I feel like circumstances are going wrong, and I'm, I have the audacity to put God on trial. Do you get it? 
We don't have the right to put God on trial. I'm not good because I've gone through difficulties. God just owes me. It's backwards, folks. But it's lies that are pumped into our culture. It's the lies that even our inner lawyer, it's the case that it's bringing all the time. You're deserving. You're deserving. It's called self-pity, by the way. It's pride. It's just the opposite side of the same coin as pride. Self-pity. I've suffered. God owes me. But then, I'm good because, well, God's obligated to forgive me. Right? This is a, you, statistically, you go around in our society and you, you know, ask folks, hey, do you know where you're going after you die kind of a thing. And the large amount of statistics come back and this is the word that is given. Well, God, if there is a God, he's obligated to just forgive me. That's, who is, that's his nature. And it's to say, where in the world do you find that theology? That's a self-determined theology. That is not the theology that God gives us from his word. In fact, I want to read a verse for you. Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Did you catch that? He who justifies the wicked. If they're courtroom, once again. If someone stands there being tried, and he is guilty, but the judge says, I know you're guilty, but you know what? I'm letting you off. You're innocent. That is an abomination to the Lord. That is injustice to God. He can't just let the guilty go free. So then, if all stand in that category of condemnation, if all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, it is an abomination to God to declare you who are guilty innocent. God ceases to be God if he just says, oh yeah, I know you're guilty, but you know what, I'll take you and put you over here in this category of innocence. Something else must happen for God to declare a guilty person innocent. God's not obligated to forgive you. He's not obligated. That's not his nature. He is a God who says, sacrifice Penalty must be paid for sins. Condemnation must have a penalty. There must be a resolve to that, and that brings us back to the text. There is now no condemnation for those in who? Christ Jesus. How has that been made possible? Is Jesus or is God just kind of breaking his own rules? saying, oh yeah, I know you're guilty, but I'm going to call you innocent. Oh, no, no, no. Jesus steps into our place, and what does he do for us? He goes to that cross to bear in himself our condemnation, to bear upon himself our sins. All those thoughts of lust, all those moments of self-pity, all the believing of those lies, that is all sin that Jesus goes to the cross and pays for in your place. There is condemnation for the guilty, but in Jesus, in Jesus, there is now no condemnation. 
Once again, coming back to where I began, if you're a guest with us, if you're exploring Christianity, I can't let you believe those lies. If I let you believe those lies, then I take Jesus away from you. The unfortunate thing with this culture, it says, you can believe some of that stuff and you kind of attach Jesus to it. It's, the wrong, it's a false Jesus. It's an anti-Christ Jesus. It's backwards. It ain't the real thing. Don't buy into it. Don't buy into it. Don't buy into it. You take the true Jesus away, you got nothing, right? The one who lived for you, died for you, was raised for you, you take that Jesus away, you got nothing. You twist that Jesus, pervert that Jesus, you got nothing. You miss out on the headwaters of this salvation that although we are guilty because of Jesus, what he has paid for us, we can be declared innocent. You take the headwaters of this salvation away, you have nothing left. Everything else in Christ dries up. Catch it? Don't buy into the lies of your inner lawyer or this culture. It'll rob you of Christ. We are guilty, but in Jesus, only in Jesus, in Jesus alone, do we find a place of righteousness and innocence before the Father. Trust in Jesus. But now we know, and this is still a little bit of review from last week, we know that as Christians, the good news can become what? The old news, right? We can, in our Christianity, become, as that Rocky illustration from last week went, we, be, we can become civilized, right? Rocky makes it. Man, he's, he's doing really well. And there's Mickey, the trainer, saying, dude, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm walking away from, the, from this journey. And the reasoning is, is because Rocky, he says, you've become civilized. You've become too used to all the benefits that you have, and you've taken it for granted Folks, it is too easy in the Christian walk to take these realities, these glories for granted. Think about this. You stood on the guilty block. You know what that means? We can't even quite get our heads around the reality of this, but you stood on a guilty block, and the sentencing was an eternity of judgment. Can you get your head around that? Can you get your heart around that and eternity? In fact, oh, I should be careful. If there's one thing in my own heart that I say, God, can this be true? Like, like the thing that stirs the most doubt in me, pastor's heads up. If there's one thing that stirs doubt in me, it's that. That all of us stand on this guilty block and the sentencing of condemnation is an eternity of punishment. My inner lawyer, whoo, he's ready to roll at that point. Really, God? Really, God? Like, like can that truly be that my white lies and, 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 and even, you know, the, maybe, maybe a few of the greater sins are really worth an eternity of punishment? And once again, God reminds us, you don't set the standard. <laughs> you don't set the standard. 
The legal bar is not determined by you. The legal bar is determined by his infinite holiness. And therefore, it's right and it's just for God to say, yes, all are guilty and all are deserving of an eternity of damnation. I don't like that idea. I don't like it. But it is just and it is true according to God's holy standard. Christian, we have to make sure that the Good news doesn't become the old news that we just kind of get plateaued in our walk with Jesus. And that is the point of this text, verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The spirit, you always know that it is not the spirit when the old news or the good news has become old news when you've just become civilized in your Christian life. You know that that is not the work of the Spirit. What does the Spirit do? What does the law of the Spirit of life do? The way the Spirit functions in our hearts, remember, is He plunges down into the depths of our hearts, the ocean floor of our hearts. In that little submarine, you know, He goes down in there, and what does He do? On the ocean floor of our hearts, He turns the spotlight off. And there we begin to see the little critters of our heart, right? The, the, the mess of our hearts. And he begins to shine his light upon the mess of our hearts. And remember, he only shines enough, so much so that it just, it wouldn't over, if he just turned on all the lights, man, we would be overwhelmed with our sinfulness and brokenness. But he slowly, he slowly shines the light. And he exposes the darkness that is in our hearts. But what does he do next? He never stops there. It's not the Spirit if he stops there. The Spirit does not work just to expose your brokenness. He works to take all our brokenness to the feet of Jesus. He will show you your sin He'll show you your Savior. He'll show you your sin. He'll show you your Savior. He'll show you your sin. He'll show you your Savior. And that, that is why we gather and worship. That's why we gather and sing again and again. Oh, we're doing it next week too, folks. We're doing it next week. Why? Because throughout this week, what is the Spirit going to be doing? That Spirit-led life, the law of the Spirit. How does the Spirit work? He's going to be shining His light onto the ocean floor depths of our hearts showing us our brokenness, and then showing us the glory of our Savior. That's worship. That begins to create worship within our hearts and lives. This is what the Spirit-led life is like. This is what it means by the law of the Spirit. But notice then, there's a little more that Paul adds on here that we didn't cover last week. He says that the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. If you notice, he uses the word law of the spirit of life. Look at your Bible, verse 2. Law of the spirit of life, and he also uses law of sin and death. He, he's comparing some things. He's showing us the connection between these two things. The law of the spirit, law of sin and death. You say, okay, what, what is the connection here? What is Paul trying to get at? What, what, why is he utilizing these words this way? And if we would look, pull away from this text and get the big picture here. If we would look at the full storyline of scripture, you know, your Bible is broken into the Old Testament and the what? New Testament. New Testament. 
uh, as Jesus would refer to, it's the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. There is a way in which God worked in the Old Testament and a way in which God worked in the New Testament. Many would say, yeah, the, the Old Testament was largely about God's promises. He promised to do something about our sin and our struggles and all that kind of stuff. But in the New Testament, we begin to see the fulfillment of those promises. Right? So it could be promises and fulfillment. And within the Old Testament, then, there was law. First five books of the Bible are referred to as law, part of which uh, we have the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, right? Where Paul com or, uh, Moses comes, good old Larry, picture him sitting out there, trunk or treat, carrying his tablets around, writing people out to church, right? That, that's exactly the idea, right? The Ten Commandments written on the tablets. But within that section of Scripture, those first five books, there are somewhere upwards of 603 other laws. Lots of laws for God's people in the Old Testament, right? Now, these laws are broken up into different categories. This is important for us to understand because I'll, maybe I'll give you an illustration. Our, our culture will say, and I want to be careful of this, they'll say, oh, you, you Christians preach against homosexuality. And, and I would say, uh, yeah, it's in the Bible. Um, and we preach against all kinds of sexual immorality. Yes. Right? God sets that standard for us. But in the Old Testament, there will also be, in this section of laws, don't wear different uh, fabrics in one shirt. <laughs> right? It's kind of like don't eat lobster. Okay, uh, okay, so like you Christians, you'll eat the lobster and you wear mixed fabric clothing, uh, but you still preach against sexual immorality. You're inconsistent. And it's to say, oh, no, 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 you don't get your Bible, man. You don't get your Bible. Understand your Bible. Because the Old Testament law is broken up in kind of three general categories. One will be civil law, right? So you do something wrong, and uh, there's going to be punishment and consequence, and God's people were responsible for making sure those consequences were set in motion. It, it was almost like these laws dealt with the courtroom scene of God's people. Like there had to be some governing rules between relationships and all that took place among God's people, and because he was working through a nation state in the Old Testament, not necessarily a spiritual family. And so we live under the U.S. of A government, right? In that day, for God's people, they lived under their own government. They were a nation state in and of themselves as the Hebrew people, and so God gave them laws to deal with the governing issues of their day. All right? There were also then ceremonial laws, of course, the tabernacle built, the high priest, and the, uh, uh, the other priest who then uh, would regularly bring sacrifice, right? would sacrifice uh, lambs, animals, on behalf of the sin of the people. Right? So there, there was ceremonial law, but then there were also moral laws. That's the Ten Commandments, and then some. Right? Don't kill, don't murder, don't commit adultery, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so what we have, as Jesus comes, as we go from promises to fulfillment, as we go from Old Testament law to fulfillment, we begin to recognize, well, we don't have civil governing authorities. We're not the Hebrew people. We, don't, we live in the U.S. of A., and therefore... These civil uh, rules, laws, don't exactly apply to us, right? Now, we do take these as the church and say, America, uh, we're, 
I think we could say it this way, as the church, we become something of the conscience of America. We need to make sure that justice is being brought to bear. But we don't live under the Old Testament laws, civil, of, civil laws. Ceremonial laws, high priest, temple stuff, God's presence, sinful man. How is that all dealt with? Well, it's dealt with ultimately in who? Jesus. Jesus becomes the sacrificial lamb. He becomes the high priest. He becomes the ultimate mediator. This is all absolved in Jesus. Jesus satisfies it all. But what about this moral law? The moral law stands. In fact, what Jesus will say in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5, he sets out what is called the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus will actually say, you heard it say in the Old Testament law, you shall not murder. He'll say, don't murder. Right? But he'll say, if you have even anger in your heart, you're already guilty of this. Jesus takes the law, and he doesn't lessen it. He heightens it. He says, you even have that kind of stuff going on in your heart, and you're guilty of actually doing it. Same thing with lust. You got lust in your heart? Well, you're guilty of actually committing adultery. Higher standard. Get the idea? All right, so what is Paul talking about here? Go back. Paul will have said in, in Romans chapter 7, he says, actually, I think I have it on, on the slide, Romans 7, 7. He says, what shall we say that the law, the Old Testament law is sin? He says, by no means. Yet, if it had not been for the Old Testament law, I would not have known what? Sin. I wouldn't know God's standard. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of what? Do you know that as a little rebel? I know, as a, with our little rebels at home, knowing my own story, when I was told, don't do this, what do you want to do? Do it. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying this Old Testament law, what it did is it just showed me how much of a sinner I actually was. And the more I heard the laws, I wanted to actually break the laws. And, and Paul will then conclude, actually later on, he, he eventually just, in all-out frustration, he says, chapter 7, verse 24, he says, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? In other words... This Old Testament law, all that it could do, there's the submarine, all that it could do was shine its light on the brokenness of your heart. All that it will do is show you, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a need, you're a need, you're a need, you're a need, you're a need. That's all it could do. Paul says, O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this block of guilt? I can't get away from my sin. But that's why he says, Romans 7, that the law is good because the law does do something. It proves to me that I am guilty, that I'm in need of something more. You get it? But what Paul then is saying then in chapter 8, he says, but now, 
the promise of the Spirit has come. So when we trust in Jesus, not only do we have one who shines the spotlight uh, upon the depths of our soul, showing us, yes, our sinfulness, yes, showing our brokenness, but he can show us our brokenness and then show us our Savior. Do you see? The law could never point us to Jesus. It can only point out how needy we were. It could never point us to the one who perfectly fulfilled the law, which is Jesus, the righteous one. But the Spirit now works in us. He utilizes the good of the law. Yes, don't covet, don't murder, don't lie. But he'll show us, yep, you've done that, yep, you've done that, yep, you've done that, but you got a mighty Savior. You got a mighty Savior. He can cleanse you. He can heal you. He can forgive you of your sinfulness. That's the difference. This law brings about death. It's the law of sin and what? Death. But oh, we have been set free by the law of the spirit of life for all those in Christ. We now have God himself who works on our behalf, yes, to show us our sin, but to never leave us there, to get us to the feet of our Savior, where we can find cleansing and forgiveness, and life again. You see, this is what it's all about. I'm going to skip just a little bit. The Holy Spirit is good. Yes, to just show us our heart little by little. But I felt even in preparing this to let you know that there are times, many times within church history, where God seemingly turns on all the lights. He turns on all the lights. In 1 John, as we said in the call to worship, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And it's to say God turns on all the lights. In other words, he gives an outpouring of his presence to his people. And in those times throughout church history, we call those moments of revival. Because you have many people, the testimonies, the testimonies are often, I thought I trusted in Jesus, but now I'm not so sure because this is so different, so new, so wonderful. I've been shown my sin in great measure, but I've been shown the glories of my Savior in greater measure. That's the constant testimony of moments of revival throughout church history. There will be times where the Spirit will show you your sin in, in great measure, but show you something of your Savior in greater. You will be, even as the Old Testament stories go, <laughs> you will fall under the weight of his presence. Uh, even as Martin Lloyd-Jones, he would give the illustrations even of Corey ten Boom and D.L. Moody, who there were moments in their lives, even later in their journey, in their walk with the Lord, in which they would, they would cry, both of them said almost the exact same thing. They both cried out to the Lord in this moment, where their hearts, they could see their hearts for all the great mess that it was, but man, they were brought to the feet of the greater Savior, and they would say, oh God, stay your hand, because I feel like I'm about to be crushed under the weight of your presence. 
It's glory. The Old Testament word for glory is weight. It is God's presence being revealed to his people in such a way that it is refining fire. It shows us just how broken we are. But oh, it shows us just how great, how great he is. Martin Lloyd-Jones would say, folks, it is good and it is right to seek that experience. Christianity isn't all about just pursuing experiences, and you have to be careful with it. But it is important. This is some, I want to see my heart in all the brokenness, but I want to see my Savior. I want to see Jesus. I want to see who he is, what he's done. I want to see him in his glory. And man, God can do in us in a moment what it would take decades to fulfill. That is the constant testimony of church history. God showing up in power and reassuring hearts of his incredible love for them, but then just giving them empowerment for mission. That is the way it has gone throughout church history ever since Acts chapter 2. So folks, it's important in these times, in these settings, we say, Lord, we're, we're going to wait on you. We will wait on you. As the word came this morning to open up the gates of our hearts, say, Lord, you want to shine your light on us that we might see then in greater measure the glory of Jesus. Come and do it. Come and invade my heart. Fill my heart with your glory. That's the aim, folks. That's the aim. We want to go after God. We want to wait on him. We don't want to get civilized. We don't want to just get plateaued in our Christian walk. No, we want to say, Lord, come and remind me again of my brokenness and the glory of my Savior. Let's pray together. God, we pray even right now. We pray right now, Lord, um, that you would come. That you would come, that you would help us to open up the gates of our heart, allowing nothing to be reserved to ourselves, nothing left in the back corners of our heart, nothing left in the back closets of our heart, but that our lives would be completely open to you. You want to shine your light on our brokenness? You want to take us down memory lane once again through all the pains so that there can be healing brought to those pains? Lord, let it be. Let it be. We want to give you sway over our hearts and life, not only on the good things that happen, but even on the difficult things that have happened in our lives. We want to give you the right to shine your light on our darkness so that there can be healing. And Lord, so that there can be something of refreshment brought to us. And something, Lord, I pray, I pray you, even as we sang earlier, the church has got to wake up. There's a mission field. There's a harvest that is ripe. There are many that are ready to come to faith in you. So, Lord, clean us up. Clean us up, then use us. Put our hands to the plow so that your kingdom might be realized in greater measure, so that the glory of Christ might be brought to many more souls, we pray. Oh, that the good news would be such good news, not held on to ourselves, but shared with many others. 
This might be uncomfortable for, for some of you, and you, I think you guys know by now, I'm all about, let's just get uncomfortable. Martin Lloyd-Jones will say, um, he'll say with Corey Ten Boom and D.L. Moody, sometimes the presence of the Spirit comes in the most amazing ways where you're almost crying out to God, stay your hand, stay your hand, your glory is too great, your glory is too great. At other times, his filling comes in subtle ways. Martin Lloyd-Jones would tell the story of a, serm, uh, of a pastor who, who uh, you know, was just struggling, just barely getting by. And he waited on the Lord and just said, Oh, Lord, come. I need to know your presence again. I need to know your refreshment again. I need you to fill me again. And nothing happened. But Martin Lloyd-Jones tells the story the next morning. That pastor woke up. He said his... He felt as though there was a roaring lion in his bones. <laughs> it was just, he said, it, there was nothing profound that happened the night before, but when he woke up, oh man, he was just emboldened for mission. He was emboldened with the gospel. He had to take it out. He had to proclaim it. It was refreshment to his soul, but also then boldness to go begin proclaiming Christ to others. So I don't know what it'll be for you today. Maybe it'll be subtle. But I think what we need to do is simply say, Lord, I need your filling. I need your light. I need your presence upon my heart and life. And so here's what I'm going to do. Oftentimes, we just get comfortable, civilized, sitting in our own chairs, making no decisions as to the pronouncement of God's word. I want to invite you either to take a knee where you're at, or to come forward and take a knee at the altar here as a, as a declaration, as an act of faith that says, Lord, I need your presence afresh. I need the good news to, oh, be good news, <laughs> not old news. I need it afresh. I need an outpouring of your presence again. I want to be emboldened for ministry. I want to be assured in greater measure of your love. Wherever you are, you can take a knee and say, Lord, this is my act of faith before you. Or if you really feel like, man, I want to step out. I don't care what other people think. I'm going to go forward as a sign of faith, as a step of faith and say, God, here I am. Here, the doors of my heart are open before you. Come and invade this house. Invade me with the light of your presence. So let's go ahead. As the song is being sung, take a, take a move.
don't rush these times. Don't rush them. I know there's stuff that go on this afternoon. Don't rush him. He is the pearl of greatest price. He is the treasure. It is right for us to seek him and to seek him with all our heart. This is acts of faith to kneel before him, to say, God, we need you. He's waiting for you to just become like a child. You don't come with all your wisdom. You don't come with all your strategy. Not thinking that tomorrow, oh yeah, I can shoulder that. No, you can't. <laughs> you can't shoulder tomorrow. You're meant to do life with your God. So don't be quick in these moments to run. Acts 2, they waited on him. They waited on him. He's always faithful to come. He's always faithful to contribute something, to give something of his grace, to give something of his presence to us. So, Lord, we stand with open hearts and open arms, open hands before you. We just ask for you to fill us. Fill us. Lord, we surrender. We give you sway over our mind. All those tempting thoughts that mull through our mind throughout the week, all the thoughts that are contrary to you and to your law, Lord, we surrender it to you. We say, take sway upon our thoughts. Where our imaginations and our, our, our fantasies have run, Lord, we, we pray as well, have sway, clean house, turn our thoughts around. Turn them around so that our thoughts would be right and pure and holy. Lord, where the anxieties of our hearts have overwhelmed us, oh, would you silence them? Dissolve them in the light of your truth, in the light of your presence. You are a God who is not limited. You are not limited. You are not limited. You are Yahweh, self-sufficient, self-existent. You depend upon nothing. And so, Lord, as the one who's overall, we surrender our anxieties even to you. Say, take away that unbelief. Take away that unbelief. Take away that unbelief. Lord, give us rich and right thoughts about you. You didn't give us a spirit of fear, but of love, power, and sound mind. So God, we give you sway over our hearts and minds. Lord, our bodies... We've used our bodies for all the wrong things at times, put wrong things into our bodies, gone places with our bodies, used our hands to do things that we should never do. We recognize, Spirit of God, that yes, we are deserving of condemnation. Spirit of God, we pray now that you would set our eyes upon our greater Savior. He has gone to that cross on our behalf, carried our burden away, absolved all punishment that was due to us. We now stand free. So Lord, even our bodies we give to you and say, sanctify them under your blood, sanctify them under your truth. 
We give all that we are to you. Fill us, fill us, fill us, we pray. In Jesus' name. If you want to linger a little bit, that's good. <laughs> Don't rush it. <laughs>